Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be here with you all this morning. Uh, as Chuck said, I'm part of the Gospel Coalition Arizona Pastors Group, and so I've spent uh, many times in this room for the Charles Simeon Trust Workshop and gathering with fellow brothers and servants of the Lord. And so it's an honor to be here to open God's Word with you to see what He might have for us this morning. I've chosen a, a little bit lesser-known passage out of 1 Kings 19. You probably will know the preceding passages um, that has just fascinated me recently. And so as we get into it, uh, before I get there, a little bit about me. As Chuck said, I am planting a church with my family and a group of friends, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are planting in Desert Ridge, which is uh, right where 51 and 101 meet on the north side of town. We chose the name Desert Ridge Church because I am very creative and it was available. So we are planting Desert Ridge Church. Um, I have a wife. Lauren, she is faculty at Arizona State University for nursing practice. She recently switched from University of Arizona. <laughs> I got applause last, last service for that too. Yeah, so um, we are grateful for the switch. Uh, and uh, she actually is a colleague of Jill in the nursing faculty, nursing school. Yeah, there's a fancy name for that. Edson something or other. Um, and we have three sons, so Haddon, Lewis, and Knox, five, four, and one. So if you ever wonder what my day while the sun is up looks like, you can imagine it. Um, we ended up in Phoenix about three and a half years ago. Before that, we spent three years in Seattle doing ministry there. And before that, we were in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I'm from. One of our favorite things about living in Seattle was we could take day trips to really interesting places. So we'd go up to Vancouver, Canada, um, or down to Portland, and Portland was a particular favorite of mine because there's a place there called Powell's Bookstore. Um, anyone heard of it? Yeah, we got a few people. Powell's is an entire city block in Portland. According to the website, it is 68,000 square feet of books. They have over a million books for sale, which for comparison, the entire city of Phoenix library system has 16 locations, and has 2 million books, DVDs, and CDs available. So if that gives you any sort of idea of how big Powell's is, it's marvelous, especially if you're like me and you love books. But we always had to work on something with, with my wife and I, which was, so she's very good in terms of shopping. I've never had to like sit on a bench in the mall for hours upon hours. Um, she, on the other hand, has to deal with me and bookstores. Um, and Powell's in particular, we learned after the first time going that I needed a time limit and a budget. And so typically she would come and look at books for about 30 minutes and then go to a coffee shop to enjoy some good coffee while I would spend another two hours or so in the bookstore looking at some of the over a million books. And the problem I had was there were so many choices. In a, in a building with that many books and so many good options, do I want fiction? Do I want nonfiction? Do I want this set of Charles Spurgeon books or this set of John Owen books? Or do I want to thumb through these periodicals? Like, there were so many choices. Do I want new? Do I want old? Can I spend all of my money on one of the antique books in the fancy rare book room? And inevitably, I would leave and I would wonder, did I get it right? 
Did I, did I actually get the best books based on the time I had and the money I was allowed to spend? Did I get the right books? Because I had a choice problem. There were so many choices, so many opportunities, so many places to give my time and my attention that I would leave worrying, what if I got the wrong book? What if I never find that particular copy of that C.S. Lewis book again? And the truth of the matter is all of us run into this situation. Maybe for you, maybe it's not books. But I think if we're honest, the immense amount of freedoms and opportunities and choices can overwhelm us. And because we fear missing out on something, because we fear that we might make the wrong choice, we lose sight of what is most important. We become worried and anxious about doing the right thing instead of trusting in the Lord. And in our sin, we let choice distract us from what matters most. And what we're going to see in 1 Kings 19 is that because of what God does for us, we can surrender all for him. We can make the best choice by surrendering all for him in a world full of distractions. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 19 through 21. So 1 Kings 19 verses 19 through 21. 1 Kings is Old Testament. I know Chuck took you through 1 Samuel fairly recently, so a couple Books to the right of that, you will find 1 Kings 19. Read along with me. So he departed from there. That's Elijah. He departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. It can be easy to pass over these three verses at the end of 1 Kings 19. And if you know the context, you'll understand why it's even easier to pass over it. In 1 Kings 18 is the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where they were in a drought and they're praying for rain and all the Baal prophets and Asherah prophets are doing all their crazy stuff. And Elijah mocks them and says some crass things about their gods. And then Elijah does his thing. The Lord brings fire and then rain. And then Elijah finds his life threatened because the king and the queen do not like that the prophet of the Lord won the battle. So he runs, he flees, and the first half, for first 18 verses of 1 Kings 19, Elijah is on Mount Horeb for 40 days. And it is there that he is longing to hear the Lord speak to him. He is fearing for his life. He is fleeing. He is anxious a wind comes, but the Lord is not in it. An earthquake comes, but the Lord is not in it. Fire comes, the Lord is not in it. And finally, in a whisper, the Lord comes to Elijah. He encourages him. He says, I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. That's a paraphrase. And he says, I'm going to appoint these new kings, and I'm going to give you a helper, 
a new prophet to come with you, a man named Elisha. And so that's where we find ourselves, where Elijah, coming down from the mountain, has now found his successor, his partner, his servant, Elisha. And he finds him plowing a field. And on the surface, we might think this is kind of a strange little passage that talks a little bit too much about oxen, and then it's over. But there's so much going on here because of, of what Elisha does. Elisha is going to be the character that is going to draw out the truth of the scriptures for us. If you're note takers, I, I have a, a little four-point sermon here. We're going to start with the call of Elisha, then the sacrifice of Elisha, then the true and better sacrifice, and then the true and better call. So the call of Elisha is where we begin Elijah is coming down. He runs into Elisha as he is plowing. And here we can start to learn some things about Elisha because it says there are 12 yoke of oxen. That is a significant amount of oxen. And you have to remember in, in this day and age, it is an agrarian society. It is a place that is built on farming, on living on the land, so that how you determine someone's wealth is not by the size of their bank account or their 401k or whatever car they're driving. Instead, it is based on their land and their flocks and their herds. And so we can determine just from these short verses that Elisha is from a well-off family. Twelve yoke of oxen is significant. So he's from a family of means, but he's not above serving. Notice what it says. It says there are twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth, which means that he is on the ground doing the work with probably some hired laborers, some servants. But Elisha is a, is a worker. He is doing the work that God has placed before him on a daily basis, which will help us see why he is so responsive to the call. And then Elijah comes and calls by putting his cloak upon him. Cloak in this situation was a, a garment that would be draped over a prophet or a king. Multiple times in, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we have references to cloaks on both prophets and kings. It is not a magical cloak. This is not the wand choosing the wizard. It's not whatever is happening with Doctor Strange. I don't fully understand that superhero. He's got a fancy cloak. This is not that cloak. This is a simple piece of fabric placed upon him to denote that he is called to the office that wears the cloak. He is called into serving the Lord as a prophet. It's a symbol of adoption into this new role, this new opportunity, this new form of serving. And now Elisha has to respond to the call. The initial response is an exchange that on the surface might seem a, a little bit uh, apprehensive, yes? He says, I need to go kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah responds saying, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elijah's response is not sort of a negative, like, why are you going back? He's saying, go, tell your father and mother, but don't forget what I've said to you. Don't forget this calling that I've placed upon you. Come back to me. And so he goes back to his father and his mother. But this does raise a, a question. 
Because if you know the gospel accounts, you probably remember a passage in Luke 9 where a man wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, come follow me. And he says, but I, I need to go bury my father first. And Jesus was not pleased with this answer. So is this the same thing? Isn't this the same thing? I mean, Elisha's saying, I have to go say goodbye to my father and mother. And the simple answer is that it's not the same thing because the family will share in his conviction. It seems that Elisha is a part of this remnant in the land that is still serving and worshiping the Lord in a, in a land full of idolatry. And as we will see in the sacrifice that Elisha makes, the family is on board with it. They are supportive of it. They are, want him to follow the Lord. So we know the convictions of Elisha and his family through the sacrifice. So let's look at the sacrifice then. Because this is the part that is truly remarkable of this, these three short verses. It says in verse 21, He returned, and following him, he took the yoke of the oxen, and he sacrificed them, and he boiled the flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. So a yoke of oxen means that there are two oxen on this yoke, this plow. And he has taken the oxen and the plow, sacrificed the animals to the Lord, and uses the plow for the fire. He is burning his plow to offer the meat, to offer the animals to the Lord. And there's two remarkable things I want to tell you about here. The first is that this sacrifice, this form with yoke and oxen, happens only one other time in all the scriptures. In 1 Samuel 24, am I doing something to... Okay. In 1 Samuel 24, the plague is coming into... It's me? Now. Go here. All right. Can you hear me? All right. So, it's a little bit louder. 1 Samuel 24, there is a plague that has come upon the land. David, who is king, has done something wrong. He has taken a census. He has counted the people. God told him not to do it. A plague has come, and the plague stops because David is pleading for mercy. He's confessing that he's a sinner, and God stops the sacrifice on Aranua's threshing floor. And it is there that David takes the oxen and the instrument for the oxen, the yoke on the threshing floor, and offers it to the Lord. He uses the, the yoke, the plow for wood, and the oxen for the sacrifice, the same sacrifice that Elisha is doing here. And it seems rather unlikely that this exact sacrifice will be repeated unless God is trying to show us something David's offering was one of immediate obedience out of care for God's people. Elisha's sacrifice was obedience so that he could go and serve God's people. This is a sacrifice of obedience. It's a sacrifice to the Lord, praising the Lord, but it's also one of great cost. Because the second thing I want you to see about this sacrifice is that Elisha is leaving everything behind. Elisha is 100% turning his face and his gaze upon what the Lord has called him to do. 
Elisha burns the plow, which for you and me probably doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You need some wood, you burn what you have. But for Elisha and for his family, the plow is meaningful. The plow is useful. The plow is a tool to care for the land, to to sow and, and reap and care for the family and build wealth. But for Elisha, He's saying that there is something greater for him. Elisha is pursuing that that better thing. He doesn't need a backup plan. I have a friend who, his son is just starting college, wants to do photography. And so my friend told his son, that's fine, pursue photography, but you have to major in business as well, just in case. Elisha is not doing the just in case. Elisha is saying, I do not need this anymore because something greater has come. The sacrifice is burning the plow. He's burning his livelihood. He's burning the thing that cares for and serves his family. Just the amount of faith and the type of faith here is remarkable because Elisha believes that this calling that his calling here is the greatest good that he will receive. And so he doesn't need the plow anymore because there's something better ahead. Elisha believes the calling of the Lord is greater than anything that he can or would achieve with a plow. Jim Elliott had a similar sentiment when he wrote, he's a missionary who, who died in martyrdom. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. That is the same mindset, a desire to sacrifice in obedience to the Lord, that there is something greater in the calling of the Lord than what is immediately in front of him. But the good part for you and for me here is that we not only can live like this, but we can live like it because we have a better prophet We have a true and better Elisha. Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, obeys the Father for the good of his people, who offers a better sacrifice, who is himself the sacrifice. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll show you this, that Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. He is himself the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is in your New Testament Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 14. The writer of Hebrews writes this. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and sin offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews time and time again points out that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the sacrifice. He's the better priest. And so here as he's talking about the sacrifice, he's bringing out the fact that the sacrifice in the Old Testament, while it was a form of mercy for God's people, it was not enough. Sacrifices were enough to cover sins, but not enough to cover all sins. And people kept sinning, so they kept needing sacrifices. They actually built into Solomon's temple a, a channel system, a sewer system, to take the blood from the altar and get it off of the temple mount and into the Kidron brook. There was so much blood, they had to have a system to move it away. Because the problem with the Old Testament system was that, while well, it made you right with God for, for that moment, right? If you, came, if you went back in time with us several thousand years and we were living by the Jewish law and I brought my sheep with me up to the Temple Mount and offered it, I would be considered in right, right standing with God. Stand before him, sins covered by the blood of the Lamb. But if on the way out of the temple, I'm walking down the staircase and I step, stub my toe on the door frame of the temple and I curse the Lord who has called for this temple to be here, well, guess what? I need another lamb. So there's a problem with the Old Testament sacrifice. It was enough to make you right with God for a moment, but not enough to cover all sins. So we needed a better sacrifice, a true sacrifice, a lasting sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself, who gave himself for all sin, for all time. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Elisha's sacrifice obeyed the call to serve the Lord. Jesus' sacrifice to the Lord made all who trust in him righteous, so that in him we have everything we need if we will come to him and follow his call. Because the sacrifice of Jesus comes with the call of Jesus. Let's go to one more passage here. This will be the last time I make you move. In Matthew 11, we find the call of Jesus. The better call. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. A just beautiful, beautiful passage here. Matthew is, is recording the words of Jesus as he is calling those to follow him who are living in sin, who are trying to make Jesus into the type of leader and savior they want. And in verses 28 through 30, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a lot that can be said about these verses. I know Chuck has mentioned before, at least to me, probably to you, about the book Gentle and Lowly. And it's a wonderful book. We're not going to get into the heart of Jesus here. I want to focus on the call. Because here we find the better call of Jesus. Elisha's call was for Elisha alone. Our call is greater because Jesus is greater. Jesus calls all to him. And notice who he calls. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, because here we see a picture of the gospel. We see this marvelous picture where Jesus calls us to come to him. And oftentimes we, we, we think we need to come to Jesus with a certain set of, of skills or talents or to make things a little bit better before we come to Jesus. But that's not who he calls. He doesn't call the people who have it together. Who does he call? The laboring, the heavy laden, the sinners. Come and bring your weariness. Come and bring your burdens. Jesus takes my sin and your sin. Jesus takes my burden and your burden, and he gives us rest and peace. Jesus takes sin and dies for it so that he can give us lasting rest and lasting peace and Shabbat Sabbath with the Lord as God always designed it to be. So that in this verse, we see the call of the gospel to come, trust in him, and give our sin to receive his rest. If you've come in here this morning wondering who Jesus is, what this is all about, there's going to be more application later, but for you, this is it. Come to the Savior. Bring your sin and receive his grace. Receive his rest. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else is needed. Surrender to him. We don't take care of our own burdens. We don't do it through our work or through our personal holiness. We find rest by leaving our burdens at Jesus' feet. We sur surrender all. Surrender all the toil and the striving and the burdens. We surrender just like Elisha surrendered to the call on his life. We surrender all. Just like the old hymn says, all to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. The author of that hymn wrote that after coming to a calling of ministry. He was sacrificing everything to follow the Lord. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. That's not necessarily an easy life, though. That's not the easiest of choices we have so many choices in the world today, so how do we do this very thing? How do we surrender all to the Lord? What does it mean to surrender? We have so many opportunities, so many freedoms, so many things to take up our time and our attention. So many things that make us feel special and unique. And the Lord is calling us to surrender, to surrender all, even if it means surrendering a good thing. Think about the plow again. Elisha surrenders the thing that provides for his family. He surrenders something of value. Maybe today God is calling you and me to surrender a good thing in order to follow him and receive the best thing. There are plenty of good things that can get in the way of the best thing. Maybe it's your career aspirations or the American dream of having the perfect house and family and car that you have to say, I will, I'm going to sacrifice this. I will put it to the side. I will surrender it at the feet of Jesus to receive the best thing. Lauren and I went to the 
parenting in the digital age gospel coalition thing that happened a few weeks ago. And I, this is where I felt this exact conviction that, the, that my phone, a good thing, where I can see pictures of my friends and my family, I can communicate with people, I can trade stocks and check my work schedule. I can do so much good with this thing. But because it constantly bombards me with distractions and opportunities to fall into sin, maybe the Lord today is calling you to look at your phone and say, I need to surrender how I use this to better follow him. Maybe you need to reject the infinite scroll of Instagram to know the eternal power of the Savior. Because there is a better calling for us. There is something better that we can have when we trust in Christ. So what is the Lord calling you to surrender? What is the yoke, the plow that you can burn? Because there can be only one thing that you give everything for. There's a book that came out a few years ago by Greg McEwen called Essentialism. And there's this wonderful part in it where he looks at the idea of priorities. Namely, he looks at the exact word priority. And his, in his book, he traces the etymology of this word and how we use it. And so up until the 1400s, the word didn't exist. In the 1400s, suddenly we started talking about something being a priority in the singular. Because that's what it means. To, a priority is the thing that comes prior to everything else. But then in the 1900s, particularly in the mid-1900s, the word started to change. For the first time, people started talking about priorities, plural. And McEwen says this, the reasoning was that if we could change the word, we could bend reality and somehow have multiple first things. But to follow Christ, we cannot have multiple first things. That when we surrender everything to Christ, when we burn the plow to follow Christ, it means that we're going to look at our family different and say, I love you because the Lord has given you to me, but your success and your value is not determining my joy, my purpose, my happiness. And so if you put the Lord first, suddenly your family will fall into the right order. Or with your work, maybe the Lord isn't calling you to professional vocational ministry, but you can say, I can put the Lord first and live in such a way that I see my work as something I do to serve people, to glorify God, and you will find greater meaning in that. Because we are called to surrender all. He gives us, he takes our yoke, he takes our burdens, and he gives us a better yoke. The yoke of Jesus is the first thing that we do in our lives. It is the best thing that we can do. Because when we get things out of order, when we start to put our family or our career or our status or our service or our view of justice above the gospel and above the Lord, that's when you fall into idolatry. That's when you stop following the Lord. But what Jesus calls us to do is to burn the plow in order to follow him. Our oldest son we, we named Haddon after Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We didn't really care for the name Charles, and my last name is Sherson, and Spurgeon Sherson would just be brutal for a young child to try to say. So we settled on Haddon, and my wife wanted a pretty thing in their room that had their name, and so I gave a couple quote ideas, and she sent it off to our friend who does Etsy-type stuff. And so there's this sign that for years has hung in my son's room, 
And so Charles Spurgeon quote, and it says this, I think we have it on the screen. I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, and that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the, the decorations of your house just sort of all blend together and you don't realize that they're there. And a couple years ago, when we were starting to wrestle with what God wanted us to do, every night we would read and sing and pray over our boys before we put them to bed. And that sign was always hanging at that room. And I kept looking at it. And I was convicted. Am I actually living that? Am I actually praying that? And so we started to pray that prayer. That was, the, that was when God started to stir up this church planting idea in our hearts. That to die to self and to live holy for him means leaving a full-time, fully paid position to go plant a church. It means dying to my idea of who I am in order to follow Christ. Because if you would have asked me five years ago, are you a church planter? I would have laughed at you and said, that's not my personality. I'm not a church planter. But when we started praying this prayer that I may die to self and live wholly to him, things started to change. It's a dangerous prayer to pray because God will answer this one. But it is the best prayer to pray because when we start to put God first and everything else behind it, when we start to say to the freedoms of the world, I have something better available. Because you see, true freedom is not the ability to make any choice. True freedom, freedom is the ability to make the right choice, the best choice. And it was in that spirit that we started to say, yes, let's plant a church. And so for you, what, is, what would it look like for you to pray this prayer and start to live it out? To take the yoke of Jesus and say, this is my first thing. The thing that comes before all else is following the Lord, rejecting other freedoms and other choices and other opportunities and other distractions to live wholly for him. Surrendering all because he gave all for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Elisha as this example for us of someone who gave all to follow you, who surrendered all, who burned the plow. Help us to recognize the plow in our life, maybe a good thing that is keeping us from the best thing, to offer that to you, to trust that you have something better to place the yoke of Jesus first in our life and by doing so, knowing the joy of surrendering all to you. To your glory, to your praise, and to your honor. We pray all this in your son's name and by the Spirit's power. Amen.